Audiobook. Audiobook release. Podcast. Authors. Narrators. Interviews. Industry. News. Reviews. Sponsored by eAudioProductions.com. Welcome to the Audiobook Release Podcast. A show for audiobook lovers. Stay tuned as we share the latest news from the audiobook industry. We interview established and upcoming authors. We talk with popular narrators and review a wide range of audiobooks. Brought to you by eAudioProductions.com. Welcome to the Audiobook Release Podcast, which is brought to you by eAudio Productions. This is a narrator interview episode where we talk with narrators from the eAudio Productions talent roster. I'm Pam Wood, an audiobook narrator myself, and today we have with us narrator Nancy Bober. Before we continue to the interview, let's listen to a short sample of Nancy performing a nonfiction audiobook, Preventing Domestic Homicides, an audiobook which Nancy had the opportunity to co-narrate with Oliver Charles and Hollywood actress Mariska Hargitay. An Introduction to Domestic Homicide Understanding the Diverse Nature of the Problem Peter Jaffe, Katrina Scott and Anna Lee Stratman. Domestic violence is recognized as a major health problem across the globe. At the extreme, domestic violence can end in deaths through homicide and homicide suicides. In this book, we use the term domestic homicides to refer to homicides that happen in the context of an intimate relationship and perpetrated by a current or former intimate partner. These deaths can include the couple themselves, or third parties such as children, new partners, other family members, or professionals such as police who intervened. Well, hello and welcome, Nancy. Thank you. Uh, Very happy to have you here. So very pleased to be here. So why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up and whatever you care to share? I grew up just outside of Boston in a town called, or actually a city now, called Newton, Massachusetts. So I was about 10 miles west of Boston itself on what's called the Green Line, the subway into town, and spent quite a lot of time actually within the city as a younger person. So um, definitely a suburban, somewhat privileged upbringing. It's a, a wealthy part of Massachusetts with a great school system. I had two very supportive and loving parents who made the mistake of sending me out for acting lessons when I was young and very, very shy. They wanted me to get out of their shell and they had no idea what they were getting into. Wow, what an advance opportunity for now. (laughs) That would be a really good opportunity for your audiobook work down the road. So, well, it's funny, I don't hear any Boston or Massachusetts sound or dialect from you. It's an odd thing. I had a grandmother who was Scottish with the full burr. I had a grandfather who was Quebecois. His first language was actually French. I had another grandmother who was an opera singer. And as my father would say, we do not use D's, Dems, and Do's in this house. (laughs) (laughs) So fully enunciating words to be understood was actually part of our everyday upbringing. 
no one in the household had a Boston accent. Ironically, I married a man who has a full-on Boston accent, and he's slowly lost it after being married to me for 30 years. Isn't that something? I Mm. grew up next door. um, Our neighbors, she was from Boston area originally. And uh, she, you know, she would say, you know, I got to park the car. And uh, (laughs) my mom's name is Reba. Hey, Reeves. Hey, Reeves. I mean, it was just, you could really, I don't do that very well, but you could really tell that uh, she she wasn't from like the DC area where I grew up. Mm -hmm. Um, So, well, so you are an audiobook narrator. So Mm -hmm. when would you say you um, discovered this or how did you um, get interested in audiobook narration? Well, it's something of a long and winding path. I wanted to be an actress because I had been given acting lessons as a child. And when I was just out of high school and I graduated fairly young because I was a September baby, I decided I was going to try for the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. Of course, that failed. I was, oh. what, 16 and a half or so, mm-hmm. far, far too young and naive. And after picking up a few teenage-type jobs, I decided I would go to the Connecticut School of Broadcasting's broadcast training, which was an interesting thing. I was not driving yet. I didn't have a way to get out of the market. And Boston at that time, I think, was the fourth largest radio market in the country. So nobody's putting me on the air. I did a little bit of voiceover for one of the colleges And then I got a job as a kitchen assistant to a fellow who had been the former executive chef at the Ritz-Carlton in Boston. And I went down a completely different road. I became a chef or a kitchen manager or a line cook or whatever the role was at that time. And for about 20 years, I spent a lot of time in kitchens. Wow. And I love, I always admire chefs. I just, you know, I'm a home cook, but I just love and and love to watch and hear about them. It's an interesting and very different lifestyle. I thought I was going to go into some form of arts. I've always sewn and designed and, and done things with fabric as well. So I thought, you know, I'm going to be a creative for the rest of my life. Cooking is creative, but it's very small aspect of actually doing the job. There's a great deal of of physical, preparing the food, ordering the food, creating the menus, putting things away, especially in large volume. Supervising? Oh, very much so. Yeah. It's a completely different mindset and not half as creative as you think it is, unless you're at the very, very top of your game. So I did that for many years and met and married my husband well within that industry. After a while, I left that because we finally had small children. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started looking around at, okay, I really do want to be a creative individual. I don't want to be the person who is just going to work to go to work. I want to get something for myself out of it. And um, after working in a gift shop and working at a nursery and various things like that, I finally fell back into the restaurant industry as a waitress. Now, at this point, I already knew pretty much how to do that from having plenty of kitchen experience. And I found that my husband could be at home with the kids while I'm waitressing during the evenings, and I could raise them at home. But once they got to school age, I had a few hours in the morning, not enough for another job, but perhaps to volunteer. 
and I started volunteering to read for the visually impaired. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. And all of a sudden, it floods back to me that I'm a hyper reader. I have always read a bomb could go off next to me, and I wouldn't notice it. I get very engrossed (laughs) in what I'm doing. I have the vocal chops. And now I was becoming familiar again with some of the equipment. This is just as home recording was starting to get going. It was well pre-pandemic, and we didn't know that this huge shift was going to happen. Did you go out somewhere to record the volunteer work, or did you set something up at home at that time? Well, at that time in our town, we had a recording space for the visually impaired. So I would go in once or twice a week and we would read the paper, myself and and another gentleman, Dave Wood, and it was done live. So we'd scan the paper, we would organize what we were going to read, but then it would be a live cold read after that. Mm, Okay. Which was really interesting (laughs) because if something happened within the booth, you had to be able to react to it. You didn't have the chance to go, oh, oh, I messed that up. I'm going to say that again. Because as I said, it, it went out live. I think there was a five or six second delay. How, we got how was good that broadcast live? How did they get that out to the people? Uh, they had time? their own broadcasting um, channel and specialized radios to pick it up. It was part of an organization in the area not just for people who were visually impaired, but who were not able to hold up the newspaper or had other issues that made print impossible for them. It was actually fantastic, actually, for kids with dyslexia because they could follow along and helped out quite a bit. Of course, that type of thing has expanded greatly, and Learning Ally is probably the most popular example of it. And they're still going strong. I I do work for them occasionally when I can, and I love it. You know, probably one of the most worthwhile things that we can do with our time. Yes, I've I've done two short ones with them, and they're great to work with, you know, for the narrators. So how did that lead into your audiobook narration? Now, you were still doing the waitressing? Yes, as a matter of fact. And then you were doing that? Okay, good for you. um, Usually just one or two nights a week, but... Once a once a restaurant is in your blood, it's very difficult to get out. Waitressing also has a really distinct advantage of being one of the only jobs in the world where paying attention to what people are doing, saying, and how they're acting isn't intrusive. It's actually your job. So I have picked up vocal tics from people. I've looked at people and thought, oh, now that person, they're going to be a character. <laughs> that little thing that they do, that mm-hmm. is so for this character in this research. Book. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, you, you do actually get to read people and see them in all kinds of emotional states. And, you know, if you did that on the street, somebody would think that you were very strange and staring at them. You actually get paid to do it when you're a waitress. That is something to consider because you can pick up, you know, voices and accents and dialects and like you say, volume or not so much volume and what people are, how people are talking. So when did you pick up your first audiobook then for you to be able to produce? Well, I started looking at things like ACX and I was looking at uh, voiceover in general. 
And I was thinking, oh, well, maybe I can. It's been a long time, but things are changing. Maybe I can get a few gigs in VO. And started looking at the broad spectrum of what VO is. Mm -hmm. And the commercial VO is hustle. It's be available to record when it needs to be done. Go out, find the work, get your people, work with those people, establish your brand. I am not quite as driven as that. I'm a more of a long form type of person. And not everybody is. I have some drive, but I don't want to go beating my head against the wall all the time. So I started looking at these things. I stumbled across ACX and I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. You know, I could probably do that. Um, looked into it a little bit further. And started saving my pennies, literally, when I was waitressing, the silver and copper change went into a specific drawer, and that's what I bought my first microphone out of. Oh, very good. And then I went to the thrift shop, and I got extra blankets and curtains, and I put them on a PVC pipe structure. Yeah, that's what mine is, yeah. Yeah, made it as quiet as I could, and just sort of kept on learning kept on taking small steps forward. Eventually, and keeping in mind this probably started seven or eight years ago, I started getting training. I got training with Sean Pratt. I've done APAC and the Splendiferous workshop with Johnny Heller. I've been to his New England retreat a couple of times. I've worked with Joel Frumkin for yes. his um, acting class. Acting classes. <laughs> I'm an alum. Um, I would love to do that again. He is hilarious <laughs> and really has a lot of good things to say. So keeping the steady forward movement, I started understanding the whole process a whole lot better and being confident with each step that I took. Eventually, my mother passed away a few years ago. There was a little extra that came into our coffers and I managed to upgrade my microphone and buy myself a Studio Bricks. Wow, that's yeah, nice. That's my that's a goal for me down the road for sure. It, it is a dream. Yes. I absolutely love this thing. But it took a while to get there. When they say it's a marathon, not a sprint, they're not kidding. It it's, is. It's rather like putting together a hand-pieced quilt. You have to put all the pieces together and see if these pieces work together, then stitch them together until it gets large enough to create an actual quilt. For those um, that are listening that may not be familiar with ACX, it's sort of the dating pool between (laughs) um, authors and narrators, where the authors, and it's part of Amazon, and they're all connected, and... um, the authors upload their books and the narrators seek them out to see if something is of interest to them to narrate. And uh, so a, a lot of us, including myself, you know, we've, most of us start, start there for sure. So do you, of course you remember your very first audiobook was it off of ACX and what was it? It was. It has never even been rated. Uh, what happened is someone hired me at a very low per finished hour rate to do what was essentially a vanity project. And I did that. And then it took eight or nine months for them to approve it and pay for me. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Eventually they did. a long time, yeah. And in that meantime, I had also picked up a couple of cozy mysteries. And those were royalty share. 
and I managed to get those done. So those were my my first steps in, and they were uh, they were good learning experiences. Um, yes, I felt I'm the not same. going to mention the names because, frankly, they're horrendous. <laughs> but you've got to start somewhere. <laughs> we feel like we want to hide the first couple, you know, but they're they're out there, you know. They're, they're, they can't Audible take them has back. them. <laughs> so what what do you like most about uh, you, you mentioned long form narration, and I I had a similar, you know sounds like a path you took. I was really interested in VO and uh, the commercials, uh, commercial work, and ended up doing long-form narration that I couldn't even imagine doing. I just, you know, it wasn't something of interest, and now here I am. So what drew you in or draws you into long-form narration? I'm one of those people who will go down a rabbit hole on a subject. If it's something that I like or even something that I have a mild interest in, I want to know everything about it. I sew on a sewing machine from 1904 that's a treadle sewing machine. They're not something that you find everywhere all the time. So if I see something about a treadle sewing machine, I know about it. I can identify approximately when it was manufactured. I get excited about that. There are very few people on earth who get excited about sewing machines. Let's be <laughs> honest. It's a sewing machine. I get things in my head and I want to go down that that rabbit hole. That feels good to me. And that means that some of the longer form and some of the drier subjects really don't bother me. They don't bore me. I kind of understand that if someone took the time to write about a subject that they care enough to write an entire book, about, I can get into it too. It's almost getting into the author's head and finding what it is about this subject or this thing that they're passionate enough to want to put down on paper and want to put into the world. So do you find yourself drawn more to fiction or nonfiction with that in mind? With that in mind, definitely nonfiction. I actually, I love nonfiction for the fact that it makes me feel as though I am learning something. Uh, Very trivial in that way. (laughs) I love trivia and odd knowledge. Characters and character work and fiction and fun things like that, those are fun, to, but to me they're somewhat fluffy. Great fun to do, love the energy, but their long-term value to me isn't the same. A a well-written nonfiction book is going to be relevant 200 years from now. A story is still going to be a story. Nothing against that. You know, some of these stories have been around for generations and hundreds of years, and they get repeated. There's a reason Shakespeare's stories can be seen in previous works and they've been updated for the last few hundred years. Mm-hmm. But if you're speaking of something that is an actual fact, a, a nonfiction thing, Someone can look back at that in a couple of hundred years and the truth of it is there for them. It can be built on historically. That may sound a little a little odd, but I like history. And one of the things in history is that you very rarely find the basics of everyday life in the ancient world or in the medieval world because everybody saves the things that are special the wedding gowns and the court shoes and the crowns and the jewelry. That doesn't tell you how everyday people lived. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Modern nonfiction will, in future, tell us how everyday people lived now. It's funny, too. We were just talking about this in another little group I'm in about how these historical books can still be so relevant today, depending on, you know, the topic. Some of them can be Absolutely. very parallel uh, outside of technology, perhaps. But, well, I have a kind of a two-part question for you. So mm-hmm. one would be, um, when you're listening to audiobooks, do you find yourself critiquing the performance of that narrator? And if so, or even if not, do you pull things out that you feel you can implement into your readings? Okay, it is a two-part question. And I'd like to think that if I'm listening to someone and something catches my ear as off, I then listen more closely to what happens after. Because where we read through the entire book, if it's caught my attention, it may be explained in the next few sentences or paragraphs. Usually that's going to be a choice that the narrator has made either to foreshadow or uh, bring something up that they want you to think about before the next point is brought across, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. I've really not found too many people doing narration that just dive into it without knowing what they're doing, who don't do their research. And research is a huge part of doing it and doing it right, in my opinion. So I haven't listened to many bad narrators. (laughs) We both probably have learned, um, having both of us learn from Joel, it's having that secret, that secret that nobody else knows yet uh, about what's happening and uh, just a lot of things that the narrator, you know, it's a tough job. It's a tough job to pull that all together for the listener. So the second part would be, is there anything that you've heard in other readings that you liked so well that you would like to pull into your own work? Absolutely. I have listened to other narrators and picked up a few things more in the, oh, I'm kind of jealous and I wish I could do that vein than the, uh, let me be like that. We're all so different and we bring our own selves to our narrations. So I'm not going to bring the same energy as a 25-year-old who loves to do small town romance. It's not who I am. Would I like to be able to? Certainly. Can I act it for a character? Absolutely. That's the job. Could I do it for the entire book? I don't think you'd believe me. So I think that there's a lot that we'd like to be able to do and to be able to pick up. I would love to be able to do better and more accurate accents. That's a matter of learning. It's a matter of studying it. So other than ones that you know and that you master, until you get the opportunity to really play with them and work on them more, you've just got to be jealous and work towards it. Do you have a, um, I'm sure it's hard to narrow down to one, but maybe one female and male uh, narrator that you really admire, Um, you know, their narration, their style, their voice, everything? Yeah, there's a lot. And yeah, I mean, you could, answer that question with four or five people from different perspectives. I love Johnny Heller. 
I love his voice. I love how quirky he is and the energy that he brings to things. I also like Scott Brick, who's almost a complete opposite to that. You know, he's very, very subtle where Johnny is Johnny. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Hillary Huber, January Lavoie, same type of thing. There are different energies with these people, and I respect them both. I'd like to be like either of them as far as being able to do what they do. But what we need to build off is who we are. And it's I'm actually that, listening to um, Hillary right now in the car. It, so. it, she's fantastic. Yeah. And, and there are so many. I mean, you could really go down a huge line of actors and actresses who have been doing this, and they each bring something entirely different. And depending on the books that they're cast for, you can't imagine someone else playing that particular part. We, um, I'm going to jump into genres a little bit. You've already mentioned mm-hmm. that you, you enjoy um, nonfiction, you, you like history, historical, and cozy mysteries that seem to work for you. So are there any other specific genres that you, you know, either like to do or would want to do and any type of characters that you have a preference for? I'd like to do it all. Um, I know that sounds horrible, (laughs) doesn't it? I've really been lucky in that I do, yes, have quite a few cozy mysteries. I was able to do one called The Big Breakup of 1948. Oh, which was set in 1948, I love happens 40s. to be about a crime-solving couple who solved their crimes and then took them on the radio. So we had these mid-Atlantic accents with these broad characters who were then made even more broad for the radio broadcasts. We had the ditzy blonde. We had the cigar-chewing detective. And it was great, great fun. I would love to do something like that again. I love a good character that you can sink your teeth into and really get to know. Yeah, I'll do anything. (laughs) Is there like one particular genre that you haven't touched on yet that you would like the opportunity to do? Honestly, I haven't done any erotica. I do have a pseudonym and she's done a couple of regencies and a couple of more modern contemporary romance type of things. Um, I've never done a shifter or a dragon or a demon or anything like that. And I can see why. I, I don't really think that my voice lends itself particularly well to that, but I'd like to try for the challenge. Well, there's some midlife ones now. There's quite a few mm-hmm. that have a handful of midlife shifters and things yeah. like that that I'm seeing more and more about. And and also midlife paranormal. So I'm like, okay, now they're getting the idea. Yeah. <laughs> we are a big market. We are. We're, we're not we're huge. We're not... We have some power. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me about when you get, when you either get booked for a new project or uh, you contract with one, uh, can you tell me a little bit about your uh, prep time and how you work with that? Yeah. Uh, usually I will get my hands onto the manuscript and do a, an initial read through. I really don't take notes on that. I want to get an idea of the storyline, what kind of arcs there are, and a general idea of the characters. The second read through is a little more intense. I might make a few margin notes about voices. Um, physical characteristics that stand out that might 
uh, inform me as to what this person might really be like. A lot of narrators will cast in their head. I don't cast with famous people. I cast with uh, people that I know occasionally, customers in the restaurant. A neighbor. <laughs> uh, neighbors. Yeah. Family members. Uh, on occasion. Yeah. It's kind of like that old t-shirt novelists used to wear. Be careful, I'll put you in my book. <laughs> Be careful because I will use you in some way. Your personal tics will suddenly become part of a character. You'll never know it. I'm not imitating anyone. It's just taking a particular vocal or physical aspect and, and putting it into a character. And do you track your characters? I don't really have a spreadsheet of ones I, I've done, but do you I do don't you track go them terribly or? far into it? No. Um, I don't I don't either. I'll go back you, and listen. <laughs> yeah. I'll go back and listen. If you've got a complex scene where you have seven characters talking and five of them are women. Oh yeah. I will definitely take a longer look at that and figure out, okay, well, Marianne is way up in the headspace and, you know, Jean is a little more of a uh, a straightforward kind of gal and, you know, assign them their physical and mental characteristics that make them who they are. Well, when you get ready to, to get into the booth for the day, um, maybe give me an idea of, you know, maybe what time of day or what kind of schedule you have, <laughs> what an average, if there is such a thing, an average day for recording. And what, what do you do to warm up, if anything? Well, the day usually starts with a warm bath. And this time of year, we're dealing with a lot of allergies especially when it's damp. It's mold season in New England. So first thing in the morning, get your coffee, get your day together, take a nice warm bath or shower and get everything loosened up. By the time the allergy medication has dried up what you really don't want to hear <laughs> and the tea and water have started to loosen everything else up, we get in the booth, close the door. Usually I will go through things like tongue twisters. I adore the English pronunciation poem because it will twist your tongue into different ways, get you through your fricatives, get things all well warmed up. I also have a pack of cards that a dear friend gave me that has a whole bunch of different tongue twisters on it. So oh, you can cool. shuffle them together and go from, from one thing to another and just sort of get yourself used to moving your mouth. Yeah, we, my mother, who um, turned 100 recently. <laughs> Congratulations, know, that's impressive. <laughs> it is very impressive, bless her heart. She'll sit there when she'll, she'll start hearing me, you know, she'll hear the low sounds. And so she, I'll start to hum something real, real soft. And she says, I know, I hear it, you know, or I start doing the, <laughs> the lip drills. <laughs> and she'll start doing them with me. So here we are, these two grown ladies in the living room, <laughs> you know, doing our lip drills. <laughs> Well, to do this job, you can't ever think that somebody is watching you closely. That's we true. We make some interesting faces. And, and when you said you went to acting class, you know, as a young girl, I think that's a great thing for young folks who are either shy or, you know, lacking confidence. Um, I think that would be, you know, having taken Joel's class with 10 people that you don't know, and we're having to do these crazy <laughs> crazy activities that 
totally take us out of our uh, comfort zone. So yeah, I think you were very lucky to have that opportunity as a, as a young child. Do you have a blooper reel? I don't. Oh, um, okay. Not that I have never done plenty of them, <laughs> but um, having been in kitchens for so long, I swear like a longshoreman. <laughs> no, say it isn't so. Uh, I could say it was so, but you might not want to listen to some of the words I'd use. We'd have to go bleep. <laughs> it, yeah, it's not comfortable for most people to hear. Oh, my goodness. Well, let me see if there's anything that I have overlooked that I really wanted to ask you. I guess, how many books have you done and actually how many years or how long have you, since your first audiobook, have you been in the business? It's been about seven or eight years since my absolute first audiobook. I am up at about 40, maybe 45 at the moment. I've got several on my plate coming through. I have done, uh, just done, literally last week, my first recording with a big publisher. A very small part, but, you know, it's a step forward. It's the foot in the door and... That is what next year is going to be the focus on, going a little bit bigger. And now now that there's a fairly firm foundation, I think that it's it's time to do the reach out. Well, you know, it's funny when I started um, a couple of years ago into this and I was coming in like thousands of others for COVID pandemic, looking for things to do. And I had small business that I had to close because of that. Mm-hmm. And the challenge now up against, I, I don't even know, it was probably significant then. It's <laughs> 10 times more significant now. I, I would venture, I guess, thousands of people have jumped on this bandwagon. Absolutely. So what advice would you give to someone who came up to you and said, Nancy, I really would like more information about what you do. Um, what advice can you, can you share? Immediately, I would send them over to the narrator's roadmap. It's where all of the information is. I would also sit them down and really talk to them about what kind of determination they have to do this. Sean Pratt has a wonderful YouTube video out where he asks you to go into a closet and read for a couple of hours. I think I've seen that. And every time you make a mistake, go back and start again. Because it's exactly what we do. Yes, it's lots of fun. Yes, it's an acting gig. But don't pretend it's not a lot of work. It takes an awful lot of determination and focus to actually get through an entire book. And especially when when folks are just starting out and they're probably a long ways away from working with publishers, they have to learn how to edit their work. They have to learn the equipment. They have to have the equipment. And we don't want to shoot them down, but it's, it's, no, it, it is more doable. than a notion. Yeah. <laughs> and I, it I it gained... is absolutely doable. But I think that the arc of my path, starting with an inexpensive piece of equipment, a lot of determination that became a little bit of experience that then became an investment into the coaching that became an investment into better equipment. And none of this is getting paid back yet. Right. No, this, right. Is, this has been seven years. And yes, I've made my rate a few times, 
but I'm not doing it at the point where I have paid off this booth. I picked up another piece of equipment last month. It's not paid for yet. Of course, I have paid for it, but I haven't paid for it with the work I'm doing as a narrator. Eventually, I will. But you have to keep in mind, not everybody has a waitressing job to fall back on. Exactly. That can help do that. My husband is very supportive. If you don't have a supportive spouse or kids who will actually be quiet when you tell them to, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you've got a bigger problem than you're aware. And there are people who have the acting chops who can put themselves out there as a talent and go to a studio and do the recording and get paid for it and not worry about this. But that's a very, very, very small percentage of people. You've probably heard as many times as I I have seen or read where uh, folks that who want to to get started in this will say, oh, every everybody says I sound so good when I do this and do that. And it's so much more. And coming from a broadcast background where, I mean, I was never over the top, but, you know, when you're thinking about commercial radio stations, you know, you go, hey, hey, you know, all this, they're going to tell you to cut your volume in half. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, Stage acting too. And invest, you know, I always would, now that I know, I would say invest in an acting class if you can before you even start because it'll help lay the foundation for what you're going to be doing. But what would you say, Nancy, as we will be wrapping up here in a, in a few minutes, is, is there anything else that you think people would be surprised to learn about our industry and your process of audiobook narration? Well, I think when you approach this the proper way and you get to know the people who were involved, it is the best acting community out there. Everyone is friendly and helpful from the absolute top best paid, oh my goodness, you recorded with who superstars down to the people who are just starting. Keep your head about yourself and realize any one person that you're speaking to is going to be part of your community and part of your networking for the entirety of your career. Get the coaching. Don't be discouraged. It isn't about having a beautiful voice. Um, Nobody is going to hire me because I have a beautiful voice if I can't put the content out there put it out accurately, put out some characters that are actually believable or that you're willing to suspend belief for. um, And tell a story. And tell the actual story. You know, get in touch with what the author is trying to express because it's not about you. The listener shouldn't even know you're there. They should just be engrossed in what they're hearing. So that that kind of leads me into a question about what makes a good narrator. And I think you've touched on that um, as well. So I think there's a certain amount of humble pie that a narrator <laughs> needs to have uh, because it's not about the voice. You know, it, it, it isn't a 1930s or 40s. Listen to me. I'm an yes. announcer kind of thing. <laughs> WKRP kind exactly. of announcers. <laughs> exactly. You're not trying to. To make a point within the five to eight seconds you have between records and the lead in on the next one, you know, come on down to Al's used car lot isn't what you're trying to get across. And um, 
respect is a huge part, I think, of the the whole dynamic of audiobooks. Uh, respecting the people you're working with, respecting their time, your time, and respecting what the author has to say. And I think you're spot on about the community. I think that the coaches and the what I would call top tier narrators that I've had the pleasure of connecting with along the way have been so helpful, you know, and they just, they like to hear what you're doing. At least I found, you know, Mm. I might shoot them an email and say, hey, I just, you know, finished this or whatever. And they're very responsive and wanting to help us up our game. So yeah, it is a, it's a great community. So well, unlike other forms of acting, I don't think the the competition is the same. You, you are you. Nobody else can be you, so be you. And I think that's so hard for people to grasp. I know it was for me, and it still is. You know, we compare. We compare to what others are accomplishing. And, oh, Absolutely. they just finished their first dual narration or their first duet narration, and I haven't done that yet, or I have. And it's really hard, I think, to break that mold. But there will come a time when the feedback you know, in my humble opinion, the feedback that we get as narrators will get to a point where, okay, I'm okay with that. You know, I'm where I'm supposed to be, right? Absolutely. And I would rather take the time, get the base, do it right, and continually get the jobs than be that person who comes in, does five audiobooks, thinks they're going to be the next big thing, and then gets either bored or people are tired of the the one-trick pony and they don't get hired again. And I haven't seen much of that in this industry, but we certainly see a lot of people coming in thinking, I'm going to be an audiobook narrator, who then discover how much work it is and how difficult it can be to get started, and we never see them again. Hours and hours and hours in the booth. So you have to be prepared for that. Well, Nancy, I thank you so very much for being my first guest on the Narrator (laughs) Podcast. (laughs) And uh, uh, have truly enjoyed getting to know you and chatting with you. And we've hopefully both have made a new friend. And we look forward to hearing more about you and with you in the future. And we wish you all the very best. Thank you so very much. Take care. Have a good day. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Thank you for listening to the Audiobook Release Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to ensure you'll never miss an episode. We value your opinion, so feel free to post a rating or review. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Audiobook Release Podcast. Brought to you by eAudioProductions.com.